Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, kratos and atreus, awakening, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with writer, translator, teacher, and business consultant Ken McLeod. Ken McLeod began his study and practice of Buddhism in 1970 under the eminent Tibetan master Kalu Rinpoche. After his teacher's death in 1989, Ken established Unfettered Mind, a place for those whose path lies outside established institutions. His published works include A Trackless Path and Wake Up to Your Life. And now I give you a conversation with Ken McLeod. So, Ken, here we are, two old white dudes <laughs> from North America. I hope you're going to leave that out. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not, you know, attempting to have a conversation about something that anyone might find relevant in today's atmosphere. So, how's it going on your end? Well, so far, so good. I'm pretty isolated. I have taken to having friends over occasionally for drinks or a dinner on my patio, which is very nice, and, but I'm keeping everything outside. And given the increase in numbers in Sonoma County, I don't feel comfortable even eating outside at restaurants anymore. So back to basically lockdown for me. Back to lockdown. Another few months in isolation. Yeah. 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 But it's okay. It's okay. Well, for someone who did something like seven years of retreat practice, I'm sure there's a certain amount of familiarity to it. There is for me. Well, it's actually much better because that was with a group of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you spending your time in lockdown? Well, as you know, I've been working on a book on Vajrayana, and I've completed the first draft. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. I completed that this week, and I sent it out to a small group of colleagues for content review. As I, and then when I get their comments back and have incorporated them, I will start the work of editing the book. And in addition to that, I've got two articles coming out in Tricycle in the August edition. So I'm doing a fair amount of writing. I'm doing a lot of reading and listening to podcasts, going for hikes, and trying to figure out whether to grill peaches or make peach cobbler for some friends that are coming over for dinner this evening. Peach cobbler, for sure. No, actually, I've got the road on uh, grill, grilled peaches, so, which I've only done once before, but they came out quite well. I've got a peach tree in my backyard, and it's just laden with fruit. And they're delicious because they're tree-ripened peaches, you see. Oh, man. That oh, sounds so good. There's, I mean, I can't buy a peach in a store anymore. <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm sorry you can't come up here and enjoy that. That would be very nice. Well, hopefully someday. I would definitely get a lot out of it. I think it's really interesting how lockdown has sort of thrust everyone back on their own uh, food preparation resources. Certainly, my wife and I are spending a tremendous amount of time cooking that we did not do before, and that's turned out to be really fun. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I think the one silver lining in this pandemic is that people are discovering the joy of simplicity, shall we say. Yeah, the joy of simplicity, spending more time together, and so on. 
probably if Netflix and HBO went down, it would be even more, you know. It's interesting because I was watching a couple of series on Netflix, or I can't remember which ones now, but I have been surprisingly uninterested in watching anything on television. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure why. Well, a lot of it seems to be out of date now. You know, everything has changed. And so it's about a different world. In my mind, even if it was hearkening, you know, about a historical subject or whatever, the viewpoint was from the world previous to March 2020. And we're just in a different place now. Well, I think you're right, because you look at these people gathering in groups, as we all did before March 2020, without a thought. And now it's very unclear when we'll be able to do that, though Europe looks to be doing okay that way. They're pretty well back to normal from what I gather. Yeah, they trusted science for the most part and were reasonable, and it seems to be doing okay. And here, as we all know, it's exploding right now. So yeah, it may be a while. I'm not sure it'll ever get under control because of what's happened in the States. Yeah, hopefully we don't keep exporting it to the rest of the world. Well, if we don't, Brazil will. Further proof that it's all one humanity, all one world, right? We can't just have one or two rogue nations pretending a disease doesn't exist or that they don't have to deal with it. Well, that's what people learned with the Black Plague in the, what, 13th century? And also what they learned with the Spanish flu, which was actually the American flu in the 20th century. So we don't actually learn. Yeah, maybe each generation has to relearn it, or every few generations, some of these things have to get relearned. It's really too bad that human life is so short in some ways, just because it's hard to keep these learnings going. Are you advocating that there's some value in history? <laughs> I am. I'm one of those sad old motherfuckers that reads a lot of history and really likes it, and oh, it turns out to be really useful. That's a uh, radical proposition. It is. <laughs> yes. It's just too interesting, right? So fascinating. Well, it's interesting you say that because I'm reading a book on the Reformation right now. It's called Rebel in the Ranks and starts off with a detailed biography of Martin Luther, particularly from the beginning of when he started to formulate his ideas and the absolute chaos that unfolded, which neither he nor anybody in his circles ever intended. Yeah, it seems like it was just revolution time or reformation time and him nailing his 99 theses to the door of the Wittenberger church just ignited the powder keg. Actually, he never did that. Really? No, that's, uh, he did compose a work called the 95 Theses and sent them out. But the nailing to the wall is probably apocryphal. And nailing a proclamation or a set of ideas to a church door was not a radical act in those days. Everybody did it. The local bulletin board. Exactly. Yeah. So there are other circumstances that led to it. Actually, one of them I think is relevant to this conversation is that for Martin Luther— he wanted to invoke the authority of Scripture over the authority of the Church, the papacy in particular, because at that point, his view, and the view of a lot of people in his country, Germany, actually it was the Holy Roman Empire at that time, viewed the Church as irredeemably corrupt. But when he successfully championed Scripture as an authority over the authority of the Church, 
he was completely unprepared that other people would interpret Scripture in a way differently from him. And that's what unleashed the chaos. But that, I think, is something that's very relevant to today, because we have virtually all of the world's great religious teachings available and accessible on the internet. We certainly have that with Buddhism, as you know, and everybody gets to interpret it the way they want. Yeah, it's quite a different problem than, say, even 20 or 30 years ago when it was hard to get the material at all. And if you did get it, you were usually being taught it by someone who had you know, some authorization to teach it in the standard way or something like the standard way. And now it's no problem to get the most secret of teachings, you know, just kind of thrown out there. And you have everyone, as you just said, interpreting it willy-nilly, which is, I think, kind of fascinating. Kind of fascinating, but not without its problems. That's right. The situation not just in spirituality or meditation circles, but in the culture overall reminds me of the chaos unleashed by the printing press and the radio and these new forms of communication always seem to cause some kind of giant upheaval. Oh, I agree completely. I think the printing press is a very good analogy for the present day. Radio and television caused similar upheavals, but in a very different way. I wrote a paper on this, actually, oh, seven years ago, called Buddhism in Modern Media, and invoked Marshall McLuhan. It's very interesting, because McLuhan attributed democracy to the invention of two technologies. The first one was the phonetic alphabet, and the second one was the printing press. The phonetic alphabet enabled universal literacy, because everybody can learn a phonetic alphabet, well, not everybody can learn a language based in ideograms or pictographs. And the printing press allowed for the standardization of knowledge in a way that had never been possible for not only the standardization, but the dissemination of knowledge. And it's absolutely the case from reading this book that Martin Luther's Reformation would never have taken place if the printing press hadn't been around. I see this actually in my own area of Buddhism, that Tibet borrowed woodblocks from China, which gave them a kind of printing press, and they imported ink and paper as well. And they imported a phonetic alphabet from India. And that's what allowed for the standardization of Buddhism in Tibet. That's incredibly fascinating. Was there an early time, I'm pretty ignorant about the history of Tibet, was there a time early on when there was an explosion of every different kind of teacher interpreting all this stuff in every which way? Well, yes and no. And this, again, is clearly indicated in what happened in the Reformation. You know, the success of your particular sect or not depended almost entirely on royal patronage or royal protection. Buddhism was very, very much under royal patronage in Tibet. So that prevented a lot of different sects or different interpretations arising, and that's always been the case. There have been many, many different interpretations, but there's also been a very strong hierarchy which limits the degree to which those different interpretations can be disseminated or be followed. And also the geography of Tibet makes it very difficult because it was a major journey to go from one valley to another, because you had to go over a very high mountain pass. There's an old saying in Tibet, every valley its own dialect, every monastery its own tradition, every teacher his own teaching. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So there were differences, but not the kind of profusion that is now possible with the internet here. I don't think it's exaggerating the case to say that the internet has exploded our culture and just sent it in wild flaming fragments in all directions. And I have no doubt that something we'll reassemble out of that someday as we get more used to this information profusion. But I doubt it will look anything like what existed, say, previous to 1995. Well, I think you're right. A friend of mine in Los Angeles who's a media expert and marketing consultant feels that the release of Mosaic was one of the most irresponsible acts in human history (laughs) (laughs) because it just destroyed so much. And the possible results of it were not in any way anticipated. Well, this is the thing. I mean, who knew? Right? It all seemed so fun and interesting and fascinating and filled with wonderful possibilities at the time. Well, now we have those possibilities. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. But I think your analogy of the printing press is very relevant here, too, because it took two centuries before the book as we know it came together. It was all of these screeds and things like that, which were rampant a hundred years after the printing press. At the height of the Reformation, you might say, you had everybody publishing stuff all over the place, and they could have large numbers of copies printed and disseminated, and that contributed to the chaos of the Reformation because you had all of these different interpretations of Christianity flying around Europe, affecting societies, bringing them into conflict with each other, and so forth. And it was a fascinating time, but it was also a terribly bloody time. I mean, third to a half of Germany's population was killed. Yeah, when you have any crackpot with a few spare pieces of copper able to print up his manifesto and distribute it widely, and you have a lot of people doing that in a world where any printed material was still very rare, considered to be authoritative. Well, part of the reason it was so cataclysmic is that people were so heavily identified with their religion that it was their life. And somebody else's interpretation was a direct threat to the way you lived your life. So that brought terrible conflict, and that's why you had major powers clashing with each other in these bloody conflicts. Yeah, and eventually, I mean, it took 100 years or so of just total bloodshed, but eventually we get the Treaty of Westphalen and, uh, I guess, Westphalia in English, and they kind of decide to let go of persecuting people too much based on religion, and let's start just trying to keep society functioning. Well, that's exactly right, and it seems that the Dutch were the first ones to get that idea. They're always ahead of everyone in Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it took a while, but it settled exactly along the lines that you're describing, in that they said, okay, we will agree to disagree. But what that meant is that areas of life which were normally heavily influenced by religion, such as law, economics, politics, and so forth, religion had to be withdrawn from those areas. And that's what led to the development of secular society. Yeah, a massive improvement as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) And, you know, I hope that current culture, I guess we would have to say it's world culture at this point, but that current culture someday adapts to this. And we do go, you know, step up to another massive improvement. But in the meantime, you know, we just have things coming apart at the seams in every direction. Well, 
I just don't know. I mean, it certainly looks that way sometimes. It's pretty chaotic. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Now, to what extent is the writing you've been doing like informed by this or reflecting on this, if at all? Do you find as you're writing about Vajrayana, you're finding it relevant to what's going on currently? For better or worse, how I practice on a personal level, that's quite different from politics and basically the general functioning of society. It's intensely personal, and the book I've written is intensely personal. My teacher lived in the uh, far east of Tibet, so far east that not clear whether it was part of China or part of Tibet back in the day. This is Kalu Rinpoche? This is Kalu Rinpoche, yes. And when he left Tibet, he had heard rumors about the First World War. He hadn't heard a thing about the Second World War. Wow. And the same was true of some monks at a monastery in the Sinai Peninsula after the Six-Day War in 1967. When Israel temporarily took over the Sinai Peninsula, that monastery, which was at the foot of Mount Sinai, was obviously a, an important pilgrimage place for people in Israel. And they flocked to it, and the monks were completely bewildered. They had not heard, they didn't know what country they were in. <laughs> they didn't know that there'd been any wars, either the first or the second. <laughs> and I find these things actually interesting because they give you a different perspective on things that we take so seriously. Yeah, they're concerned with something outside of these, let's say, worldly obsessions completely. I'm sure you're familiar with a body of teaching in Buddhism known as the Winds of the Eight Worldly Concerns. Just a little bit. I haven't had a huge exposure to that. Well, the Eight Worldly Concerns are happiness and unhappiness, gain and loss, respect and disdain, and fame and obscurity. So these are all juxtapositions of opposites, which is typical Tibetan linguistic technique. But, you know, things like reputation, standing in society, your well-being and, and your wealth. And those are the things that, you know, one has to negotiate in life, but none of those are regarded in the spiritual context as worthwhile ways to invest your time and energy. It's fascinating, especially because we often hear, at least I often hear, of Vajrayana as particularly interested in being effective in the world, having the ability to work in the world and have a job and a partner and a family and so on. And yet there's still this core of let's say, transcendental idea going on. Uh, you really shouldn't be that involved with this stuff. Well, I think that impression of Vajrayana is a, a little misleading, and I think it comes because one of the uh, influential texts in Vajrayana lore is a collection of stories known in India as the 84 Mahasiddhas. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. It isn't really saying that Vajrayana is interested in a life in the world. One of the inferences you can make from that book, and even that isn't really quite accurate, 
is to say that a life in the world does not preclude you from the kind of mysticism that Vajrayana is about. Because the prevailing tendency at that point was the only way that you can have proper mystical training and proper mystical practice is to withdraw from the world. And Vajrayana said, well, maybe, maybe not. And then you had all of these examples. I mean, you had something similar happening in the Mahayana. The Mahayana actually could be regarded as how Buddhism reacted to the invention of money. And because when money was invented, which was some time after Buddha lived, and you know, it became common, with the emergence of a trade-based society, or at least trade in society, you had individuals who could accumulate a lot of wealth through trade, or not even a lot of wealth. They could just live comfortably through trade with a lot more leisure time than those people who lived through agriculture. And with that extra leisure time, some of them got interested in spiritual matters and mystical practice, because mysticism was highly regarded and in India and has been for you know, thousands of years, really. And so you had sutras like the Vimalakirti Nadesha Sutra, in which all of the Buddha's monastic followers, and even his high-level bodhisattvas, are defeated by this layperson, Vimalakirti, who being able to ask them questions about mysticism that they can't answer. <laughs> An amusing sutra that way. And then the Eight of Four Mahasiddhas takes that even further, where you have you know thieves and dog lovers, dog being one of the lowest animals in Indian culture, so very unclean. Weapons makers like an arrowsmith, kings, princes, and so forth, who had profound gluttons, liars, and so forth, all of whom had profound mystical lives. And that's what the 84 Mahasiddhas records. But it's really not about living in the world, but about the mysticism that's involved. So it's not the Badrian that says you can live in the world. It's that, no, if you do live in the world, there are things you can do. But in my experience, you have to be pretty damn good to do it that way. So you think it's still the case that the monastic life is probably the best way to succeed, at, if you want to put it that way, at these practices? No, I wouldn't go anything like that far. I would say that you have to make some very, very serious decisions about how you want to live and what's important in your life. And it's much more a question of priorities. You know, you take Yo-Yo Ma, for instance, who's internationally known cellist. One of the reasons he is so good is that he practiced 12 hours a day for 20 years. Well, that's what he chose to do with his life. And you can only imagine how many things he had to give up in order to do that. That's a lot of practice. That's a lot of practice. And it's the same with mysticism. If you're serious about it, you're going to put the time in. And just that amount of time is going to take you away from a lot of other things that you might be very good at, but you've decided that, no, this is the priority in your life. So it's not the case of advocating monasticism, it's advocating being very clear about your priorities. And if your priorities are in this way, then you can expect to have to put the time in, the amount of practice and effort. It's not easy to overcome our deep internal conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, as you're writing this book, do you find that you kind of already know what you want to say, and it's just a matter of organizing the material, or is it more like you're 
learning new things about how you think and feel about this as you're writing it. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to be the glib, but both are true. I've been fortunate to have the training that I did, and so a lot of the material, yeah, I know it probably better than I know the back of my hand. But it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to be able to set things down in writing. And that took a lot of work. That took a lot of work. And so I'm just going to ask you some questions. The first question that's really coming up for me is, what is the essential thing that makes Vajrayana Vajrayana? Very interesting you should ask that, because as I was getting into this book, I decided to ask a number of my colleagues exactly that question. And I think it's fair to say that the answer is the Tibetan word dotnong, which is usually translated as pure vision, but as I thought about it, I think it is better translated as empty experience. Does this have a Sanskrit equivalent? It does, but I don't know it. I'm sorry, I'm not a Sanskrit expert. Let me put it this way. I mean, just to give you what it's pointing to. Suppose you're sitting quietly somewhere, you know, and you hear a bell, okay? And so we say in English, the silence was broken by the sound of a bell, right? Yep. But there are two ways of listening to the bell. One way is your attention goes from the silence to the bell. The other way is you hear the bell and you hear the silence at the same time. Now, most people don't do that. But when you do that, you hear things differently. And that's in the direction of what I'm talking about. Would you say this is related to clearly seeing the emptiness of things as they arise, as well as the somethingness? You can put it that way, but I'd avoid putting it that way, because you are reifying both somethingness and emptiness when you put it that way. Indeed. (laughs) Not everybody agrees so quickly, Michael. What's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I get it. And this is a recurring problem in the way that Buddhism is formulated and the way it is translated into English. That reification is taking place over and over again in almost everything that is written particularly what comes out of academic circles. And it is terribly misleading if you're approaching this from a mystical point of view. Look, it's tiring to qualify emptiness every single time you write it with saying, and remember, it's not a thing. But then learn a different way of expressing what you're trying to say. Now, in the example you gave, you contrasted the sound of the bell and the silence. Yeah. Are we not reifying the sound of the bell and the silence when we speak that way? Well... I don't think so, because those are two experiences. They're immediate. Silence is an experience. The sound of the bell is an experience. And, I mean, what is the sound of a bell? I mean, if you want to get into it from a physics point of view, it's very difficult to say what it is. Is it the vibration? Is it the wavelength? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're doing here, and your question actually brings out a very important point, is that we're focusing on experience, you know, how things are experienced not what they are. Yes. This seems crucial to me. It is very important. You're quite right. And so I don't remember the Tibetan term you used, but pure vision or empty experience. Mm -hmm. Where do we find this taught or expressed most clearly? Gosh. 
if it's the essence of what makes Vajrayana Vajrayana, where can we encounter this most clearly or most fully expressed? Where do we encounter it in the teachings or where do we encounter it in our lives? I would say in the teachings or in the practice that helps us to encounter it in our own experience. Well, let's go back to the example I offered a few minutes ago. If you consider hearing the shift in attention from the silence to the sound of the bell, that's thought experiment one. And thought experiment two is hearing the bell and the silence at the same time. What happens? What's the difference in those two thought experiments for you? The one evokes the, I'm going to say it like this, I get that immediate sense of the dreamlike nature of awareness. Which one are you talking about, number one or number two? Number two. Okay. So there you have it. That's it. And so Ken McLeod speaking on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is the ultimate <laughs> expression of this essence of Adriana. Uh, that depends entirely on how you're listening to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, it's not me. I mean, it's you experience it in a different way. And when I asked you what the difference was, you said it puts you in touch with the dreamlike nature of experience. Well, you know yes. as well as I do what that means in a Buddhist context. Yep. So don't put all the stuff on me. <laughs> I suppose what I'm doing here is pointing out why I find so much of what has been written and how things have been translated to be heartbreakingly misleading. And it's heartbreakingly misleading in the sense that it's taking this exquisite teaching and just fumbling the ball with it, right? Just not getting it. And the amount of frustration and angst and turmoil that it visits on people who are really sincere about their practice. And that just kills me. And so, just to probe into your answer a little further, do you feel that this pure seeing or empty experiencing, that's not there in Mahayana or Theravada teaching? Well, I cannot speak for Theravada because I've not been in those traditions. I have many Theravadan colleagues, and one of them I'm thinking of particularly he would know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know what terminology he would give to it, but I've had enough conversations with him that I know he would know exactly what I'm talking about here. Mahayana, this is very definitely present. To my knowledge, it doesn't have its own term in quite the same way, but certainly the way my teacher taught, it's there. The difference between Mahayana and Vajrayana, and one has to remember that Vajrayana is actually a branch of Mahayana. Yes. But the distinction that I think is relevant here is that in Vajrayana, you're touching into that possible shift in experience whenever you can. In Mahayana, you're building the capabilities so that that shift arises. That's the difference between what's called the seed vehicle or causal vehicle of Mahayana versus the result vehicle of Vajrayana. Again, terminology, which I think is terribly misleading. And also terribly interesting. So do you mind taking a moment to unpack that a bit? And we're having a conversation. <laughs> I know, but you're just speaking about the most interesting stuff. Well, I'm glad you find it interesting. Fire away. I mean, help me to unpack it. That's what I want. 
Okay. So, in other words, what I hear you saying is that in Vajrayana, we're getting a taste of this way of seeing from the very beginning and then practicing that way of experiencing over and over and deepening it. Whereas in Mahayana, we're sort of building up to it, little by little getting the capacity to be able to do that. Is that what you're saying? That was pretty good unpacking. Great. Thank you. So not wrong. Uh, Definitely not wrong. Okay. And how does Vajrayana make it easy to just do that from the very beginning? Who said anything about Vajrayana making it easy? Uh, (laughs) Right. You know, I just have a thousand more questions to pepper you with. But but you invoked the word conversation, so I'll just back off for a minute. Do you feel comfortable with the idea that, you know, there's kind of a sequence to this? You learn, I'll use this term in this context, you would learn Hinayana practices first, and then Mahayana practices, and then you're ready to learn this Vajrayana practice that begins at the place where Mahayana leaves off. Ah, uh, it sounds so neat, you know, and yeah, it, it doesn't work that way. One of the things that I've come to respect is that each person's path is their path. There's a saying in Buddhism that there are 84,000 different dharmas or teachings. Well, 84,000 is a large number, and I think what that number is expressing is that everybody finds a path, and no two paths may be the same. So with people that I uh, taught when I was teaching, some people I would lead them through a fairly methodical step-by-step process, and other people that would just, that just wasn't going to fly. Now, I find the analogy with, let's say, musical training very helpful. You have people who have very high levels of musical talent. I mean, they can pick up an instrument and play it without any instruction. And then you have other people who have to be taught everything step by step. But even the ones that are highly talented, they have to learn how to play it. They have to learn scales and arpeggios and how, if it's a wind instrument, how to blow and make the right sound. If it's a string instrument, they have to be able to bow, if it's the violin, say, or the cello. So there are definite skills that people have to develop. And again, some people have some of those skills naturally and they're refined and other people have to start from scratch and and just build them. Then there's another aspect to music and that is the ability to sense what the music's about, you know, and have the feel for it. And some people have that naturally and some people, they have to learn to do that. And then there's a third aspect that once you reach a certain point, you realize that often you're the biggest obstacle to being able to play better. (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, and top-level athletes, technically, most of them are pretty comparable. The difference is the degree to which they can get out of the way so that their technical abilities can just do what needed to be done. And you see that in tennis players, for instance, football players. Well, mysticism's no different. There's mystical talent, and there are different aspects to mystical talent. Some people have greater or less. Some people have very little. Some people have a lot. But there's still basic skills that you have to learn. You have to be able to rest in attention. You have to develop certain ways of being able to generate very clear states of mind. 
And there are many, many different techniques. The Mahayana has its own techniques for doing that. Vajrayana has a bunch of different techniques for doing that. Theravada, I'm not saying that Theravada is Hinayana, I'm talking about Theravada as it's practiced today, has a whole slew of techniques for things like that. And some of those ways of working work better for some people and some don't. I mean, in terms of exercise or keeping my body in shape, a friend of mine taught me Tai Chi, immensely valuable. I could never get along with yoga. I had three very good yoga teachers, and it just didn't work for me. But Tai Chi I practiced for many, many years, and it was extremely beneficial. So there are these individual proclivities and things like that, which that particular one doesn't have anything to do with talent. It has to do with internal proclivity. And all of these are different factors in the mystical path. Now, because of this, a lot of people think, well, I have to find my way. That is a bit of a problem. First, there isn't any my way because there's no ownership here. It's sufficient to find a way. And I think that's a very important distinction. But you cannot get away from actually developing and training and skills. You ask any top flight musician, like Yo-Yo Ma or anybody, they practiced for hours. Mysticism's no different. Yeah, I think about the root guru of my Hindu Tantra tradition, Mm -hmm. who I had the very good luck to go and meet and hang out with in the 90s in India when he was something like 113 years old. Very, very old guy. And, you know, this is someone who left home, tried to run away from home when he was seven, finally succeeded in running away from home when he was 13 so that he could spend every minute of his life meditating and, you know, succeeded in doing that often to the point of starving and, you know, so on and so forth. You know how these stories go, Mm -hmm. but, you know, talking to him, you could see that this was really what he had lived. This was his calling and, hearing people, including myself, sort of asking him, like, how can I learn to do this, (laughs) you know, fast and easy while I, you know, work in my job and stuff. And, and, you know, he was a nice guy. He would try to transmit some of this, but I sometimes felt the answer was, well, start by quitting everything because you care about this so much and spending 24 hours a day working on it. Like, he never said that, but I felt the mood of let's say I was sensitive to the fact that here's someone who gave up everything to work as hard as they could to learn this. And it took an entire life to do it. And even the question, it's a natural and innocent and even sort of very well intended question, but there's something about it that's sort of not respecting how difficult this might be. And the fact that Up until recently, people were expected to really master this by working on essentially nothing else. Well, and here I think we need to consider, it's a matter of choice. How deeply do you want to go? Now, a lot of people, they don't want to live the life of your root guru, and they want to live in the world. And they can learn from someone like your root guru, But they shouldn't fool themselves. If they're going to live and work and raise a family, they're not going to have the same level of intimate experience and understanding. 
as someone who has devoted that amount of time. And it's not just in mysticism, it's in anything. I mean, I was teaching a course on Mahamudra 10 or 12 years ago, I guess, at least, yeah. And the text I was teaching is known popularly as the Ganges Mahamudra, because it's a, a song or a poem that Tilopa spoke to Naropa, two major figures in the Kaju tradition in India, when Naropa finally recognized the nature of mind. And I said to people in the course, look, what we have here is a conversation between Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. About basketball? About basketball. You know, that's the level that these guys are at when it comes to mysticism. Now, none of us here in this room are at the level of Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson when it comes to basketball. We aren't even close to that. <laughs> but can we learn something about basketball from watching these guys and listening to what they have to say? Probably. So that's how I want you to approach this conversation. And, you know, these are the top guys. And they've lived it. They've lived it at a depth that nobody in this room will ever live it. But can we learn something about it from them? Absolutely. And that's what I'm going to try and get across to you today. And, you know, whether it's Teresa of Avila, I just love some of the stories about Teresa. An amazing person, yeah. Yeah, and any number of other mystics through the ages, it's the same thing. This was what was important to them in their lives. And we have to take responsibility for what's important to us in our lives. That's the first step, I think, in spiritual practice. How important is it to me? And Rilke talks about this in Letters to a Young Poet. Uh, the poet saying, you know, how can I do this? And Rilke basically says to him, if you can live your life in any other way, do so. But if you have to be a poet, if there's no choice here, then this is how you do it. Yeah, I remember that text by Rilke, and it's so powerful. I mean, in a way, it seems like he might be kind of dangling the bait a little bit. But in another way, you can tell that he's talking from somewhat difficult experience. Yeah. Like he, he's unable to live his life in any other way. Exactly. And he's aware of what it has cost him. Yeah. And something I can relate to. Yes. What about spiritual practice is important to you, since we're on the topic? <laughs> I think the word that arises for me when you ask that question is beauty. That there's something heartbreakingly, soul-crushingly beautiful about connecting to the dreamlike nature of everything. Interesting. It's just tremendously, it starts to get wordless there, but it's the word that comes closest is it's incredibly beautiful. Well, it sounds to me, when you put it that way, that it nourishes something in you. Can you talk about that a bit? That is absolutely correct that it does nourish something. I would say, in just colloquial English, I would say it nourishes the soul, mm -hmm. whatever that means, and however heretical that may be to say in Buddhism. But way down in the core of existence, something feels deeply nourished and even expressed mm -hmm. in that way of seeing. And it's so powerful that it sometimes makes everything else in the world seem valueless by comparison, even though everything else in the world is also expressing that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's very much in line with what we were just talking about, isn't it? 
It certainly has made me give up large stretches of time in life that could have been used to do other things, that is for sure. Because that sense of heartbreaking beauty is so compelling that for me, I was willing to give up a lot to learn to touch that more deeply. So you've done a fair amount of teaching, right? Still do, yeah. So that's one motivation for spiritual practice. What are some other motivations you've come across in your teaching? You mean other people's motivations? Yeah, because I'm sure that not everybody has had the same motivation as you. Maybe nobody. I don't hear that particular view that often. Maybe it's just the way I express it. I think there's a very common motivation of pain relief, which was certainly there for me also. Mm -hmm. You know, And... You get lots of Buddhist teachers promising the end of suffering for people, and I don't promise that because I don't think you get the end of suffering. You know, I think you get a lot of relief from suffering, but it's not my experience that I have met people or experienced myself who claim to have eradicated suffering. I think this is one of the translation points that I was referring to earlier when I said it's very misleading. Can we go into this a little bit? I'd love to. Okay, so I agree with you about in the ordinary way that people think of ending suffering. It's not really about that. But when you touch that beauty and you feel it nourishing your soul, and I have zero problem with this vocabulary, what difference does that make in your life? It makes all the difference. Yes, but can you put it into words at all? There's a sense of meaning and worth I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. That comes from that. And for me, of course, when pain or suffering happens, given all the meditation techniques I've learned, of course, I know how to diminish that a lot. And it works. You know, certainly my experience of being ill these days is really different than it used to be. Can get a lot of relief from practice. But one of the main benefits of practice is also understanding that when pain and suffering feels like it has real meaning, it's no longer the same pain and suffering. Yes. What's the difference? It's in service of something. That sounds very like Viktor Frankl, doesn't it? It does indeed, yes. (laughs) I'm sure these truths are, realizations are universal. Well... It's interesting because I've never resonated with that one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're asking me to talk about something I've never attempted to express before. I'm not sure I can stand on that one. I can definitely stand on it being about beauty. Yes. But yeah, so I'm willing to hear some critique of that. Well, I don't have any critique because when you say that, and and I can feel in, in the way that you say it, it's everything to you. Is that fair? Yes. So I think the question that I'm holding in my mind here is when you're in touch with that sense of beauty active in you, it would seem to me that there's a kind of peace there. I'm wondering if that's your experience. There's a kind of peace there, but it's not a dead or stifled or still kind of peace. It's Mm -hmm. very vivid and awake and vibrant and alive, and it's like the inherent beauty in every individual thing becomes revealed through it. Yeah. And it all has that same beauty in it. Going back to where almost we started in this conversation, or close to the beginning, what you're describing there, I think, is very similar to what I was talking about in terms of empty experience. 
I always definitely relate to that teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to put it another way, when I listen to you, all experience takes on a sacred quality. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Can you say anything more about that? There's a way that you can express it where it sounds like the sacred quality is a thing that is kind of flattening the individuality of the things, but in another way, the individuality of each thing is important in that sacred quality. So even though there's a kind of, I'll just use this term, sort of a one-taste thing happening, the uniqueness is also part of it. Could you give me an example? Tall order, maybe, but... Well, when this sacred quality is shining forth from a bird in flight as it passes by, the color of the wings and the light reflecting off the wings and the sound of the wings on the air and the way the bird's head stays positioned in one spot while the body moves around and the way its wings are curving to cup the air. All of these details are important in the way the sacredness is arising. And I'm pointing that out Because for me, sometimes when people talk about, you know, their version or their expression of sacredness shining through, it feels like it's kind of removing all that and just saying, well, there's sort of a white light coming out of everything. And to me, anyway, there's something lost in that. Even though, yes, there is, you know, a sacredness that is the same coming out of everything, the individuality of it is equally sacred. I find this fascinating. Thank you. Two thoughts. As you're describing the bird, you took me back to an experience I had at university. I had been struggling with reading D.T. Suzuki's essays in Mahayana Buddhism or something. You would not be the only one who struggled with that. (laughs) But I remember walking into school one day. It was after a snowstorm. And in front of a building, a snowdrift had formed. And I was just stunned by the line of the snowdrift. It was such a perfect line. Mm. And that's what your description of the bird in flight reminded me of. Yeah, I definitely feel it when you say it. And the other thought is, yeah, this is a little embarrassing to admit, I guess, but what you said about how the exquisite detail of everything that's going on in the flight of the bird speaks to you, compared to, say, what, as you say, other people, that there's this white light. And for a very, very long time, in my own efforts and practice, I was always yearning for that light. (laughs) But it occurs to me in listening to you that the sense of the sacred arises in fundamentally different ways in each of us. And that needs to be respected. It's certainly what I experience with people that I'm working with. I mean, I definitely 100% agree with you about the 84,000 paths. I mean, every person's spiritual experience seems utterly unique and utterly valid Mm -hmm. on some level. And I'm often aware that maybe this is just, you know, I'm an old modernist or whatever, and it's all individual expression of the individual person or whatever. But I don't think so. I mean, I really honestly see how there 
if you get in there, maybe I'm just repeating the same thing. Each person's awakeness is so unique, and that's what's so sacred about it. I think this is a really important point, because if I could use the analogy of music that we were talking about a few moments ago, at the top level, everybody plays differently, and yet they're all right, if you understand what I mean. Yes. Yet, in the modern world, everybody wants to play their way, and not many of them are right. <laughs> it's like the old Picasso line where, you know, it took me 80 years to do that painting in two minutes. You know, there's a sense of having to learn some of the fundamentals to start to learn what really is your way. But is it your way or is it something that just comes through you? I don't know if I can tell the difference. I'm going to be very mean. I'm going to ask you to say more about that. <laughs> you know, the same question of what's a soul or something when you're asking that, it starts to become indescribable or I'm really just going to describe it in a way that outlines my beliefs about the world more than what's really going on. But I would say probably the closest, if I had to vote on one of those two, it would be it feels like it just comes through me. Yeah, I tend to think so too. And I think a lot of what's talked about in mystical practice is learning how to get out of the way so that that can happen. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, everybody uses this model, or lots of people use the model of you know, blockages or some kind of psychological pattern or material, you know, a Gordian knot that's in the way of this coming through and spiritual practice being about either carefully untying it or maybe slicing through with the sword these blockages and knots. And I feel like that model works for me. I get it. You know, you see, especially when you start noticing some of this stuff coming through, you start to see what mucks up the works when it's not coming through. Mm. And my mind is starting to blank. When I start talking about this stuff, it starts to make it hard to speak. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But if I can jump to a different take here. Yes. What you're talking about seems to me to be the basis for both bodhicitta and proselytization. The way I understand those would be pretty different things. Oh yes, I'm putting those two as a contrast. Tell me more. So here you uncovered, discovered, happened upon, whatever, a way of experience which nourishes your soul, it means everything to you, and you've nurtured that in your life. The bodhicitta component is and you can tell me whether this is how you feel or not, and or elaborate on this, is, is part of you that wants everybody to know that experience too. Would that be right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's also part of me that, you know, as I'm seeing each person in their individuality, you know, sees some of this sacredness. And so there's a real connection between seeing that in them individually and then wanting to help them see it in themselves and others. Yeah. So that's what I'm referring to the bodhicitta, because that's what I think bodhicitta is about. A lot of people think bodhicitta is about altruism, but I think it's talking about what we're talking about here. I think it's quite different from altruism. The proselytizing is that you've had this experience, and you go out and preach it, and you want to push everybody into it. Right. You know, I think I had that experience for five minutes after I did LSD the first time. 
You know, <laughs> everyone needs to do this. But it seems antithetical to me to this mood. So what do you think the difference is? Because if you give people the benefit of the doubt, they've touched something that is deeply, deeply meaningful in the way that we we're talking about here. Why do you think some people go in one direction and some people go in the other? I'm only guessing here. You know, I'm not believing something here or trying to get other people to believe anything. Go on. I can relate to that. You know, there's an experience, and if you're interested in that experience, I can try to help you, you know, connect with it. But if you're not, well, go do what you're interested in. And I think proselytization has this sense of, no, this is the important experience, and, you know, in a way I kind of need you to have it. It's almost more about me than about you if I'm proselytizing. That's at least my, you know, very negative view of proselytization. A large, let's say half my family are the types of born-again Christians who go to other countries to proselytize. While I respect their motivations, I would never do such a thing, even though I spend my time teaching spiritual practice. And why wouldn't you? For me, it's that fundamental difference between I have a thing that I need you to get versus, oh, you're asking me about this thing that is interesting to you that you want to get. That you want to touch yourself. You want to touch yourself. And so there's already the openness on the other end. Ah, that I think is important, isn't it? I mean, it's a crucial, right? Absolutely crucial. Yeah. Just in general for learning anything, wouldn't you say that openness is absolutely required from the beginning? Well, for me, it is so important. I understand why people want other people to uh, touch the same kind of experience, because it's freedom, it's peace, it's beauty, in your words. It's deeply, deeply meaningful. And then there's a small matter that people have to come to it themselves in their own way. At least that's what I've learned through my efforts. Partially because the ways that were laid out to me in the Tibetan tradition didn't work so well. I mean, they worked, but I almost killed myself trying to do them. I did myself a lot of damage. And I had to change quite deeply inside to find a different approach. I'm wondering if anything like that happened with you. Absolutely. The way I was learning in the Indian tradition, in India, in that context, and also in the States with Indian teachers, there was such an emphasis on giving your all and efforting and so on. And I think that the Western mind takes that differently or something. But I certainly was like an extreme practitioner. Mm. And that turns out to be not that helpful. <laughs> to say the least. I always wanted to be an extreme practitioner. I couldn't even get up to that level. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give you an example. Okay. And everybody laughs, but this really happened. We're being taught that the Ganges is sacred and it removes all karma, and karma is what's blocking you from awakening. And so there we are on the beach in Rishikesh, and then we walk out into the water and we spend days doing practices in the water. Mm -hmm. And these are powerful practices. And you, you know, you're getting in a very altered state of mind. But I'm like, okay, well, the Ganges is sacred. It's going to remove all this karma that's blocking the awakening. So I'm just going to drink it. And so I dunked my head partially underwater. 
and just gulped and gulped and gulped and gulped and gulped gallons of Ganges water, which for a little while actually was awesome. You know, it was quite a wonderful experience until, you know, later the next day when I developed, of course, amoebic dysentery to a very high degree and spent, you know, a week exploding out of every orifice, you know, stuff like that. I could just go on with experience after experience of just, okay, well, I'm just going to take what you're saying seriously and go there. And, <laughs> you know, that was my version of extreme. And, I, I take and, it you were quite young at this point. Not really. No? It's not that, and of course I have training in, you know, science and stuff. It's not like I didn't understand the possibility, but I'm also willing to give it a shot if the other stuff the teachers are telling me is working, which it was, then okay, we'll just go there with this. And honestly, even all these years later, I wouldn't say that that didn't work. (laughs) I wouldn't say that it absolutely didn't work. It's just ridiculous way to go about it. And, And so eventually I learned to try not to do this in a ridiculous manner. There's my embarrassing confession. I, I find that very touching, actually. I mean, or, or stupid. Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, I mean, one can say, yeah, stupid. But no, what I find about it is that uh, the connection was so strong and led you to do that. Yeah, it was just an action of pure trust. I mean, okay, this. Let's go there. Yeah, let's do this. And, and then, I mean, you started off this conversation of making a comment about Vajrayana being safe. I believe. Remember that way back then? To which I retorted, who said anything about it being safe? Yeah. Doing this kind of work isn't safe, because there's no telling how we're going to understand, or when we're going to understand teachings that we've given, or instructions, or ideas that we come across in ways that they were never intended. And do something which, from other perspectives, is questionable. (laughs) Pretty pocket stupid, yeah. Uh, And... uh, (laughs) And so we're at risk from our own naivety as much as we're at risk from anything else, right? Yeah, I think this is something about the cultures in which these practices arose, is that the cultures had a long time to interact with these teachings and sort of get a better understanding of how to hear them. Yes, yes. And, you know, I I find in your work something that's interesting is you're always talking about, in a very compelling way, about like learning to look and then actually see Right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about learning how to hear these practices and actually learn or, or something. Yes, yes, I think that's good. This was taking me back to another point we touched on earlier about the availability of all of these supposedly secret teachings. But what you're talking about right now is how the teachings do remain secret until you can hear them the right way. I don't like the right way, until you can hear them in a way that opens something up in you. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I think it's certainly my experience, I'm sure it's your experience, that there are teachings you heard a thousand times, and they were interesting or whatever, and then suddenly you actually got it or heard it, and something unlocked. I'm not sure which comes first, frankly. You mean the unlocking comes first? Yeah. I suppose it can happen either way. But sometimes the unlocking happens, and then you hear this teaching, and you go, oh, I never understood it that way before. 
but then there are other times, I think you're right, that you hear a teaching, and there's like that little click inside, and a whole new possibility of experience just opens up. Yeah, and especially noticeable when you've heard the teaching over and over and that didn't occur. <laughs> but, but I definitely agree with you that the other thing can happen, you know, something changes in you and then all the stuff you've learned or read or heard suddenly opens up in a new way, for sure. That's certainly something I experienced. I think I mentioned earlier in our first conversation that I had this experience in, or the shift in 2008. And after that, the sutras became very clear to me. <laughs> you know, and like, what's the problem here? It's very clear. <laughs> yeah, they're speaking directly. I thought they were speaking in metaphor. Um, well, they're doing both, actually. It's, they're quite amazing. So, you're teaching now. In today's world, where you have all of the stuff going on, how do you bring this out in people? How do you help them bring it out in themselves? Any way I possibly can is the real answer. Yeah. Give a couple of examples, please. The metaphor that is going on in my mind, anyway, is I just keep listening for any opening in them. Okay, how do you recognize an opening? I just know one when I hear one. <laughs> you know, you can hear that sacred thing coming through all of a sudden, just a little bit, or the sense that they're right next to it. And this is what's so interesting is that people can be right next to it and not know it. But if you can hear it, then I can at least start going, well, what about that thing right there? What about that thing right there? And almost every time that fails. Oh, right. Then what? Then just keep doing stuff until you hear another one <laughs> and try to point it out, you know? <laughs> Of course, all the models, again, I think the standard model is as good as any of, well, we're going to try to stabilize the mind and remove blockages and get the person clear and precise and stable enough where it can cut through all the blockage and really have a moment of seeing, a moment of awakening. So, of course, that's all going on. It's not like I'm just, mm -hmm. we're not just playing Sudoku until they... <laughs> accidentally have an opening. Uh, we're doing everything possible to make those potentially more common moments. But I think what's clear to me is that there's a lot of those moments potentially possible all the time. And I'm at least hearing some of them and others, and they're, my job is to help them hear it too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's both hilarious and frustrating to watch how possible it is to not get it and to miss the opening. All I ever see is, I just remember how many times I missed that exact thing. It's just so fascinating to watch the mind go. It's like the complexes are in charge. It just goes in a completely different direction. But then, you know, every once in a while, they'll hear it. They'll get it. And that's a sweet moment. Yeah, yeah. You said something, I think it's in your book, Wake Up to Your Life, where you say, well, most teachers are just trying to point that out all the damn time, you know, with everything. And I don't claim to be one of those teachers who are, you know, at any level, but that's certainly what I'm doing all the time, is just hearing openings and trying to point to them and trying to engender practices that maybe help more openings occur. Mm-hmm. I found the section of your book about pointing out practice and all that to be really, really 
very clear and well-written. Like I would recommend that to anybody. It's a, it's very, very excellent. Well, thank you. You're touching on a couple of points I was going to raise anyway. One is you used the metaphor of cutting through the Gordian knot. I found that, I'm wondering what your experience here is, I found that in every block, certainly in myself and I think in others too, those blocks are there for a reason. And they were instrumental in helping people negotiate their lives, usually fairly earlier in their lives, but they were instrumental and for their survival. And not necessarily sometimes physical survival, but you might say emotional survival or what have you. And that what I found increasingly is that any direct movement against those blocks actually activated it. It just went straight into survival mode and took over. I find this is very often the case. Yes. And so what evolved for me is that as soon as I detected one of those blocks, I would never approach it directly. I stopped trying to approach it directly. Something from Zhuangzi comes to mind where he's describing the butcher and his chopper or the uses for cutting up oxen. And the butcher says, you know, most butchers, they sharpen their chopper every week. The good ones, they go for a couple of months. You know, they chop, they hack, they whatever. Me, I put the chopper against the meat. I feel for the space between the bones. And I put my chopper in there and just separates and the whole thing falls apart. So I haven't sharpened this chopper for years. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd like to be like that. (laughs) If you see what I mean. I do. So can you put that in an example? Wow. Okay. Uh, You you did that to me, so. (laughs) I cannot remonstrate. You're quite right. Uh, (laughs) One time I was teaching a workshop with another teacher, a Theravadan teacher, and I find it's very useful to distract the conceptual mind. And I wanted people to understand how the conceptual mind gets in the way. So I had everybody stand up, and I said, without putting yourself in any danger, please, I want you to balance on one foot. And pretty well everybody balanced on one foot. There's a certain amount of movement, etc. You know, with it, as they made adjustments, most of them held their arms out at some length, because that just means you have to make much less movement to restore balance. I said, very good, okay. Now I'd like you to balance on one foot, but I want you to think about balancing on one foot. And nobody could stay up on their foot for more than a couple of seconds before they lost their balance. Yeah. And said, okay, now I want you to go back and just stand on one foot again and be there. And so everybody's doing that. And in the middle of this, I just said, what knows how to balance? And one woman immediately sat down and went, it's scary in there. She'd seen how deep it goes. And what was very funny is that I had everybody sit down as soon as that happened. And I talked with that one woman. And I said, yeah, I know that it feels scary in there, but this is exactly why you came to this workshop. And then she recognized that what I was saying was right. It's like touching that beauty that you talk about, right? Yes. Later in the afternoon of the workshop, She was fine with that, and she got it. Okay, that knowing which has absolutely no concept. Yes, that is why it came. So she touched it, which was wonderful. That afternoon, 
I was having an interaction with somebody else at the workshop. And this woman who'd had that insight in the morning stepped in and turned to the other person and said, no, that's not right at all. It's like this. <laughs> and I just, I said, okay, the two of you go outside and sort this out. <laughs> but she touched it and she could see exactly where the other person was stuck. I thought it was quite wonderful. That's a great example. You brought it up. You brought up both the concept and the example by saying that you know, we don't want to go at things directly. Mm -hmm. And yet, in a way, this seems to me like going at things directly. I realize that you're talking about distracting the mind and then going in. And so, is that what you mean by the indirectness? Well, that's one example. The real task of the teacher is to discern to the best of their ability what's going to be helpful to the student. And that's no easy matter. Sometimes, for me, it was a case of letting the student unfold at their own pace and accepting that's just how it was going to be with that student. And others, they could benefit from being pointed directly at something, not necessarily the block. That's what I'm saying is I stopped trying to address the block directly. I would usually give a method which would change their relationship with the block rather than trying to remove it, if you see what I mean. That's very clear. Yeah. yeah, I get that. Yeah, because trying to remove the block activated the block, activated the survival mechanism on which the block was based. It just starts defending itself. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what I meant about not going directly, but to give a method so that they could start relating to the block in a different way that didn't activate that survival mechanism. That's what I meant about being indirect. Very clear. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm noticing the time. Mm -hmm. and we're going to have to go here in just a few moments. But I have one burning question left. Only uh, one? <laughs> only one. I have many that I'd like to ask, but one that I don't want this to end without me asking. Okay. Because... Not only is it of interest to me, but I saw on social media that it was of interest to a number of people. And that is, in Theravada Buddhist practice, there is a very strong emphasis on suffering. Seeing suffering in all experience, you know, noticing it as a mark of existence over and over and over again. And there's, one might say, a kind of centrality of the reality of suffering in that practice. And at least in my experience and understanding of Vajrayana, that is not emphasized very much at all. I mean, it's there, but it doesn't seem to be a central interest or a central teaching. Now, can you help me out here? Is Vajrayana just not interested in that, or how does it handle this? Aspect. This is a very interesting question. The first thing I, I want to say is a, is a kind of plug for, I really think suffering is the wrong translation for dukkha. So you'd use something like unsatisfactoriness? No, no I go in a different direction. This actually I, I learned when I was asked to do something with a sixth grade class. They were giving uh, presentations on different religions. and the, This was in a uh, very wealthy area of L.A., and so there were representatives of the different religions there. And the group that gave a presentation on Buddhism gave a very nice summary of the Four Noble Truths, etc. And so I asked the head of the group, so Buddhism says life is suffering. Do you buy it? And she said, no. And 
I found that most people don't buy it. But if I ask the question differently and say, do you struggle in life? Everybody says yes. I feel that struggle conveys the word dukkha is conveying in Sanskrit and what dungal is in Tibetan. I think struggle conveys in English much better. Fascinating. The other thing that came to mind as you were describing this was something I came to appreciate while I was writing this book, and that's the teachings on impermanence, which are really important in the Tibetan tradition. And I think you're right. I mean, certainly we have the teachings on struggle or suffering, but impermanence is really important. And initially, the teachings on impermanence and the teachings on suffering or dukkha, whatever word you want to use for it now, they're motivational. At least that's the idea. But in fact, I never found them terribly motivational. Me neither. However, as time went on, I began to appreciate impermanence as an understanding of how the world is, how life is. So it was actually a form of understanding. And I think understanding that life is a struggle is also a form of understanding. And then when we encountered very advanced meditations, dealing with very subtle states of mind and shifts, then again, impermanence principally, but also suffering, these teachings again came to the fore, which I was very surprised about. Well, haven't we dealt with those? But I realized that at that level, those teachings on impermanence certainly served a different function, and that was to raise energy. So you were more there with how things actually are. And that was crucial for those practices. So I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that these teachings can serve very different functions at different stages of practice. And I'm wondering if that isn't the case with dungal or dukkha, suffering, struggle, whatever. For instance, I can see a connection between the beauty that touches you so deeply and seeing people struggle. Yes, I'm curious about Vajrayana. So I'm mistaken in thinking that Dukkha and Anitya are not emphasized. No, they're very present. Yeah, they're fundamental. Let me go back. What are you aiming for in Vajrayana practice? You're aiming to touch a way of relating to the world. You can put it in either way. You can either say you're free, and because you're free, it's at peace. Or you can say you're at peace, and because you're at peace, you're free. And both of those have everything to do with the sense of struggle in the world, because when you end struggle, then you're at peace. So it's about finding a way to be in the world, no matter what the world is throwing at you, that you can be at peace in it. And I imagine you touch into that when you touch that sense of beauty. Yes. Yeah. So that theme of struggle, the theme of impermanence, that everything passes, and the third one, of course, is non-self. These are part and parcel of Vajrayana in the same way they are of Theravada and Mahayana. So interesting. I feel like we're just beginning to touch the topic. And at this point, I have to sign off. And I know you do as well. So thank you so much. It's just great to talk to you. Well, I thoroughly enjoy our conversations, Michael. And I'm very grateful to you today because in our previous conversations, both the previous podcast and a couple of conversations we had over lunch, 
He hadn't expressed that connection with beauty the way that you did today, and I just found that so moving, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. And again, I just love our conversation. Okay. So let's have that. I would be delighted to. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. 
He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>